0: This episode is brought to you by Casper, where you can get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price, plus get $50 off your order when you go to casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout. Now, another quick reminder that Best of Left has been nominated for a podcast award, and you can help us win by voting once each day between now and March 24th at podcastawards.com. We're up for the top prize this year, People's Choice, and our friends over at the Majority Report are up for their 4th consecutive news and politics award. So support independent progressive media by setting a daily reminder for yourself to vote every day for both Best of the Left and Majority Report until voting closes. And don't forget to verify each of your votes when they send you an email verification. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Bigger Picture Project, The David Pakman Show, The Marion Institute, The Real Food Media Project, Radio Dispatch, and Redacted Tonight.
1: My grandpa flashes a gold tooth when he smiles, like I dare you to take something from between my lips. His tooth shines from the light of the TV screen when my family watches Telemundo during dinner time. While I practice my Spanish, grandpa unhinges the English from his mouth at least for a little while. This is how we both learn to be Panamanian American through television and food. He tells us of our ancestors, how they raised maize and yucca from the earth, hands steeped in indigenous soil, how as warriors we drank cacao and water bitter from the gourd, a medicine sacred to the gods. Between growing up in Cologne, Panama, and a tour in the U.S. Army, Grandpa is a proud old soldier marching through a never-ending war. At 66, We are scared that another stroke could do what no war ever could, and cut him to the ground. He drinks, like Aunt Maritza didn't lose both of her legs to diabetes last year. Like half of our neighborhood doesn't look like the emergency ward of a hospital, like he hasn't seen the pictures. How it is impossible to tell the difference between a roadside bomb victim and someone who just forgot to take their insulin, Grandpa, keeps at least two twelve packs of soda in the fridge at all times. Sunny Delight, Tampico, High C, a jug of Kool-Aid in the back, Dr. Pepper lines our refrigerator door like a vest of dynamite, an arsenal of ways for us to self-destruct. It is how you learn to drink, growing up in a country where soda is cheaper than clean water where hunger is a canal carved deep into your belly, where the only options for work are the docks and the army, because your country is as occupied by Coca-Cola as it is by the U.S. military. When you must march to the call of whatever feeds family first, you drink whatever fits conveniently in your hands. I understand, Grandpa, but don't you know we are still at war with the country that wants us dead? How us children of Panama and America learn early to walk softly and carry a big stick Like U.S. assault rifle in one hand, Coca-Cola bottle in the other Our country wasn't enough, they're colonizing our bodies, our taste buds It isn't a coincidence that the military and beverage companies call us their target audience Our black and brown bodies marching to the center of their crosshairs at home, a Coca-Cola commercial followed by a U.S. Army commercial flickers across my grandfather's tooth and they both shine like the discharge of a gun. I learned to drink like Grandpa, like cologne, Panama, like 14 billion dollars spent on soft drink advertising last year. The threat of diabetes is as common in our family as hard work, obedience, and discipline. It is as common as Coca-Cola in our refrigerator and we drink until the glass is empty. Cause we ain't never learned to pull maize from the soil, but we did learn to pull the tab of a Coke can. Don't it sound like the linchpin of a grenade? Both explode under pressure, ain't we just time bombs then? We march until they cut the legs out from under us, ain't we perfect soldiers?
2: study says that drinking what is now called a medium soda each day can age you as much as smoking there's been this commercial i've been seeing on TV where soda and fast food companies are all coming together to teach people about healthy eating once i finished laughing and then crying about the fact that a soda company was now on national television saying they were going to help you eat healthier i came across this study which was published in the peer-reviewed Journal of Public Health. This was a study of 5,300 adults and they compared the cells of people who drink soda every day to those of their non-soda drinking counterparts. And in the soda group, the ends of the chromosomes, these are known as telomeres, were shorter. This is a sign of aging. Telomeres naturally shorten with age and they represent a diminished ability for cells to regenerate and the telomeres were drastically shortened in the soda-drinking group, whereas they were not in the group that that did not drink soda. 4.6 years of telomere aging is what was seen in those who drank a 20-ounce soda every day. This is the same amount observed in smokers. Now, there are a few caveats here that I want to bring up. Number one, the study did not find that individuals who drink uh, sugar-free or diet sodas, right, the ones that have uh, artificial sweeteners instead of corn syrup. They did not find the telomere shortening there. They also did not find it in those who drank a medium fruit juice every day, and of course fruit juice has significant amounts of sugar but not corn syrup. So number one, we should distinguish or at least be aware of the fact that we haven't really identified what element of soda it is that has contributed to the telomere shrinking and we also haven't identified Lewis whether it's some other thing some other activity that those who drink regular sodas every day are participating in that might be uh, 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 aging their cells in a way that's equivalent to smoking so there are definitely a lot of questions here what we do seem to know is that drinking soda every
3: day is a really really bad idea We can say that with certitude, yeah, and that should be avoided altogether. I I have stopped drinking soda completely years ago. Same here. And I am am very glad that I've done that.
2: And the, the other thing I'll mention with regard to this, I wonder those who drink a soda a day in other countries where their soda is sweetened with sugar versus corn syrup, would we see the same effects on telomeres? Remember that in the U.S., most soda is sweetened, at least the big corporate sodas are sweetened with high fructose corn syrup when you go to even mexico and order a coke corn syrup is not one of the ingredients it's cane sugar that's used to sweeten i'd be interested in seeing if if that also made an impact so an interesting study doesn't really tell us everything we need to know it, it does bring up a lot of interesting questions though about sugar and corn syrup and uh... uh, uh soda consumption
4: Chosen for the uh, talk here this morning, it's it's going to go quick, so uh, listen carefully. Um, Heretics unite. You know, we don't use the word heretics. We um, you know we we have business books about the called the lunatic fringe, you know, um, and early adopters, and then you know all the followers, but. Digging back into history, I like the word heretics because the, 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 the uh, counterpart to that is an orthodoxy. And I think sometimes that we uh, don't appreciate that we live in a time of, uh, of orthodoxy just like our, our predecessors did. For example, remember at one time, uh, you were considered a heretic if you said the earth is round and not flat. I mean, the orthodoxy of the day was, everybody knows, the earth is flat. You know, you drive out to the edge, you fall off, and you see Atlas underneath, you know, holding things up. Um, the sun revolves around the earth. You know, and if you said, no, the earth revolves around the sun, everybody would say, what, are you nuts? You see it rise every day. The sun comes up and the, the, the earth sun revolves around the earth it's obvious um during the uh, middle ages you know uh, the bubonic plague death and diseases were caused by spirits and you can see the you know the stone cuts of those uh, european times where you know you had the the uh, the spirit of measles and the spirit of whooping cough and the spirit of these things um you know there was an orthodoxy at one time that slavery is fine slavery is okay Orthodoxy that uh the way to cure diseases was to put, you know, leeches and, 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 and uh and 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 slice you open to let your blood out, get all those humors humors, those bad humors out of the body. Um moving a little closer home, you know, a time when uh uh when feeding uh, dead cows to cows uh is is progress. This is what we do, you know, the US duh. Um US duh, F duh. Um took farmers took farmers like me, you know, to free steak dinners for 30 years, teaching us this new scientific method, the orthodoxy of the day, where we, you know, we take dead cows, we feed them to cows. And uh people like me that didn't embrace that, you know, were labeled Luddites and anti-science, barbaric you know, Neanderthals and all this. And then, uh, you know, today, now there's this, you know, eventually there became this worldwide, uh, oops, maybe we should not have done that, you know. As people realized that the orthodoxy of the day was not right, and then of course today we have, of course, the the, the genetically modified organism requirement to feed the world. The world's going to starve if we don't have um, GMOs. So the, the the point that I'm making is that every society has its orthodoxy. So what I'd like to do, very very quickly, is look at just a couple of the orthodoxies of our day, and then I want to invite all of us uh, um, to to. ...join together to unite as heretics and weigh and 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 wear the heretic label proudly <laughs> so so here here are a couple of orthodoxies all right number one nature is broken and we have to fix it that's the orthodoxy of our of our conventional thinking uh, you know, when our neighbors, uh, you know, good people, but we're on different planets as far as worldview is concerned, you know, when an animal gets sick... They assume that that animal, uh, that that the animals, uh, the default position of nature is sickness, and they've got to use vaccines and pharmaceuticals just to you know to fix things, to keep things alive. Um, That that plants, you know, their their default position is that they're going to die and get fungus and mold, so you know we have to spray them with chemicals and things like that. If if a a plant dies and gets sick, it's apparently you know chemically disadvantaged. Um, If if a cow if a cow gets sick, you know she was obviously pharmaceutically disadvantaged. We just weren't using the right concoction. And um, I would suggest that the heretics, like us, say, no, nature is fundamentally well, and the patterns of nature work very well, thank you very much. And if something is sick or something is wrong, it's not nature that's out of whack, it's we who have done something to it that made it go out of whack, So, so we, so heretics believe that we can actually create, without pharmaceuticals, without chemicals, without a bunch of, uh, of outside things, that we can actually create a terrain of health that that, that builds up an immunological hedge against, you know, uh, problems. Right now in the U.S., you might not know this, but since January 1 of 2013, just a, a year, almost two years ago, uh, we have now been in the U.S. losing one in four piggies born in, in the uh, in the pork industry to a new uh, thing called Epidemic Porcine Viral Diarrhea, EPVD. Uh, I've already decided that if there's anything worse than diarrhea, it's got to be viral diarrhea. Um, so epidemic porcine viral diarrhea and of course you know now the industry is just reeling you know trying to figure out how to find some solution vaccines drugs whatever you know and all the land grant universities are charging through a lot of research money and dollars and things trying to figure out this but search high and low and you will not find one single researcher daring to ask the question I wonder if we shouldn't put five thousand pigs in a house. See, you, you you can't even ask the question See. Yeah, that's the problem with orthodoxy. It, it it it's so it's so ingrained in the in the culture that you dare not even ask the question. And so what we have now is that life is fundamentally mechanical, and the only question is, can we grow them faster, fatter, bigger, cheaper? We all know that that's that doesn't work. I mean, the average NFL football player is dead at fifty-seven because when your neck is bigger than your head, you're a freak, and nature weeds you out. You know, it's just. so we're looking at those patterns in nature and saying how can we adopt those how can we actually use those and and so our our search is not for a new uh, a new concoction a new mad made lab concoction but our search is to understand humbly and more fully how these nature templates and patterns work and then and then uh, caress them as 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 a land masseuse if you will uh on the on this this ecological womb that is our nest the second orthodoxy of our day efficiency requires monospeciation i mean if we're going to have efficiency we can't have diversity on the farm we can't have diversity in life if we've got to go to uh, segregated, monospeciated systems like concentrated animal feeding operations, single-species farms, single-use infrastructure, linear marketing channels—you um, know—we we, we can't have—we can't have all the—we we, can't—we can't have 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 multiple species on a place. I mean, I mean, we just can't do that. We've got to have single. The heretics, like us, we say diversity and multi-speciation is nature's template. And so we start talking about things like permaculture, stacking enterprise, and, and on our farm, you know, we've got all, we've got this cacophony of ducks and pigs and chickens and tomatoes and fruit trees and mulberries and pawpaws. And uh, it's a, it's a, and, and they're all proximate to each other. They all, they, you know, the animals graze under the trees and then the, you know, the compost. And, and I mean, it's all one great big, uh, um, diversified bunch and you know what suddenly the pathogens are confused And confused pathogens are a good thing. And it actually is far more productive. And even among our, in our work, you know, we're not doing the same thing all the time so we don't get carpal tunnel syndrome because one minute we're, we're, you know, it's a whole different, uh, petting to pet a pig and then pet a chicken or, you know, uh, and so you use different muscles, you see. Picking tomatoes is completely different than gathering eggs. You know, one is down, one you know. And so you use different muscles, and so so when we look at nature as pattern, we see this 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 diversity, this multi-speciation, um, and and that has led us to a fundamentally segregated view toward food, to where you know uh, the. The soil is supposed to be fertilized with material that comes from somewhere else, um, and it comes in, and then it grows. It grows uh, corn and beans to feed something over here, and they're put in a segregated facility over here, and then you know they're they're processed over here, and then they're trucked over here to be eaten over here. And I mean, we don't even live proximate to our own, uh, uh, you know, human waste, our own poop. You know, it, it has to go over there somewhere, and rather than being you know near. Um, and so so we've got this system, you know, um, like like the, the backyard chicken thing. I mean, uh home chickens. I mean, what what more integrated approach to living and to food than to have a couple of chickens in your house? I mean, take you know a dog and a cat. I mean, a boa constrictor, gerbil, I mean, they just sit there in entitlement, you know, pet me, feed me. I don't do anything. They just sit there. But a chicken, I mean, a chicken, first of all, think about if you have kids, if you want a role model for your kids, man, the chicken is the critter. Boy, because a chicken, a chicken, they're, they're the first animal up in the morning. I mean, they're up before the cows, they're up before the pigs. They're the first thing up in the morning, and then they take your kitchen scraps, they take your garbage and turn it into eggs for you to eat. I mean, they're the ultimate recycler, the ultimate turning trash into treasure. And then, guess what? When it gets to be a little bit dusky dark, they're not looking around here trying to prowl around at night and, you know, and and become a a, a police problem at night. Uh, they go to bed. They jump up on the perch and, and They don't, they don't carouse at night. I mean, what a better role model for kids. They get up early in the morning, they work hard all day, they turn trash into treasure, and then they go to bed at night. And then you don't have to worry about them. So that's the example of an integrated system. You know, people say, oh, you know, we can't we can't feed the world, we've got too many people, blah, blah, blah. Listen, the United States has thirty six million acres of lawn and thirty six million acres housing and feeding recreational horses. And I haven't even gotten to golf courses yet. That 72 million acres, that's enough to feed our entire country without a single farm or ranch. We can go to edible landscaping. What you know, it doesn't take any more time or money to grow a fruit or nut tree than it does an ornamental blossom. Now, I, I like pretties as much as anybody else, but if we have farms that are aesthetically and aromatically, sensually romantic, they can be tucked in any little nook and cranny in urban areas and wherever. And yes, chickens even in your house, honeybees on the roof, pot gardens on the patio. I mean, pot, uh, pot.
0: A a of now, I like to think that podcasting is a technology that's disrupting the old media paradigm, and you may have started noticing a trend that the types of companies who want to advertise on podcasts are the ones who tend to be forward-thinking and out to disrupt existing markets in a similar way, using technology and the internet. Well, Casper is just such a company, and they're out to change the way people purchase mattresses forever. The technology starts in the mattress itself. It's a combination of memory foam and foam latex, and I've been using it for a few months myself, and I'm happy to report it sleeps like a dream. The process of ordering your new mattress has never been easier. You order online, have it delivered to your door in an impossible small box. You open it up, you cut it loose, and it pops to its regular form in just a few seconds. And then you get a 100 nights free to try it out. If you don't like it, Casper will take it back. Pricing starts at $500 for a twin-size mattress. It goes up to $950 for a full king size. And if you've been shopping for a high-quality mattress anytime recently, you will recognize what a great deal that is. And also, to help you out even more, you can get $50 off your order by going to casper.com slash best and using the offer code best at checkout. That's casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout for $50 off your order and to let them know that you're supporting this show at the same time
5: the world's population keeps growing by 2050 we'll have to double our food production for that we'll need genetic engineering advanced pesticides and fertilizer lots of fertilizer That's why at AgriCon, we're working every day, hand in hand with farmers and their families. And don't you want to feed the world?
6: Messages like this one seem to be popping up everywhere, but who's really behind them? Turns out it's the corporations profiting from this way of farming, like those selling the pesticides, fertilizers, and chemicals. They're spending billions to warn us that their way is the only way, with industry groups like the Alliance to Feed the Future, whose members include the Association for Dressings and Sauces and the National Frozen Pizza Institute. But ask farmers who really know how to feed us, and you'll get a very different story, a heartbreaking and hopeful story that I've heard talking to hundreds of families like this one. Fifty years of this myth and the lobbying dollars to support it have tilted the playing field to favor corporate-controlled chemical agriculture, giving farmers little or no support for any other path. So it's easy to understand a lot of farmers feel it's either get on board or get out. Getting on board means farmers stop practices that keep soil healthy and go for single crops. Livestock that used to be raised on the farm get crammed into polluting factories. To keep this unnatural system going, these farmers now buy expensive inputs, all from ever fewer corporations demanding ever rising prices. It's a quick addiction. Pests become resistant, so you've got to use more chemicals. Livestock becomes sicker, so you've got to use more drugs. Soil loses its natural fertility, so you've got to use more chemical fertilizer. Then on the other side, when farmers try to sell their crops, they face only a few big buyers offering unpredictable prices. The economics don't work for long. Over the last 50 years, millions of desperate farmers have had to sign contracts with corporations that dictate their every move, or have lost their farms altogether. More and more, farm income is concentrating at the top. So now only one in 10 US farms can support a family. In many other countries, a similar thing is happening. Small farmers who buy into the promise that corporate agriculture is the solution often get trapped by debt and dependency. So, yes, corporate agriculture is good for some folks, including some of the largest growers, but not the typical farm family. And that's strike one for this myth. But we have to feed the world, right? And if not this way, what choice do we have? A great one. We just don't see ads for it, and it certainly isn't getting the subsidies going to corporate ags. State-of-the-art sustainable farming ends this unnatural chemical addiction. It uses better practices, not ever more expensive purchases. Sustainable farmers build healthy soil by planting a variety of crops and rotating them. They raise their animals on the farm, not in cramped factories. They fertilize using compost and livestock or planting soil nourishing crops. Healthier plants with good crop rotation also help keep pests in check without hurting the bugs we need, like those all-important pollinators. How does this choice impact everyone else? Massively. Industrial farms degrade and erode precious topsoil. 64 tons per acre are being lost every year in some spots in our heartland. They suck up huge amounts of water, a lot of it from deep underground, essentially irreplaceable. And they use millions of pounds of antibiotics, a practice that leads to dangerous new bacteria. They also produce toxic runoff that pollutes our rivers, our oceans, and us. The average American already has at least 13 pesticides in our bodies. And thanks to chemicals in the field, farmers and farm workers have higher rates of many cancers. So the sustainable farm is better for farmers and the environment. But can it really feed the world? Study after study is saying yes. Sustainable farms produce as well, and in drought years, even better. This is important news for small farmers who already grow 70% of the world's food. To increase production, they don't have to follow the chemical path. And the future we're all talking about feeding? The industrial farm requires more fossil fuels, water, and mined minerals. All stuff that will only get more expensive as it runs out. So down the line, the chemical path not only can't work for farmers, it won't be a choice at all. Corporate agriculture doesn't reliably grow more food in the future or even today. And that's strike two for this myth. But we still haven't looked at the biggest hole of all. They say we need to double food production or we'll go hungry. Really? We already have almost 3,000 calories a day available for every human being on Earth. More than enough. And that's after wasting a third of all food grown. And a lot of what is grown isn't food we eat directly. A third of the world's grain is going to livestock. In the U.S., our biggest crop is corn, but less than 1% of all corn planted is what we eat. Most goes to fuel or feed. So staying on this track, we could increase production and still have more hunger. To end it, everybody has to have the power to buy or grow the food they need. And that's what sustainable farming is all about. Strike three for this dangerous myth. So the next time someone who makes frozen pizza or toxic pesticides tells you there's only one way to feed the future, tell them their story is full of holes. The evidence is clear. Sustainable farmers prove we all can enjoy healthy food, and we each have power to make this happen. We can redirect our own food dollars and the billions in public money now going into the pockets of big ag. We can stand up and speak out, for sustainable farmers here and around the world.
4: Number three, the next orthodoxy of our day is home kitchens are unnecessary. Let others do the cooking. Forty-nine percent of meals are prepared outside the home. We now have whole uh, um, houses built without, uh, without kitchens. They're called breakfast nooks because all you need is a microwave. And now with cornstarch plates, you know, you don't even have to wash dishes. You just put it in the microwave, nuke it, and eat the food, eat the package, and you're all done. of Americans at 4pm have no clue what's for dinner. Convenience rules the day. There aren't any family meals. Nobody knows how to pass food anymore. Uh, food ignorance is everywhere. I mean, you know, it used to be that 30 years, you know, a lot of people don't realize that 35, 40 years ago, you could not go to a supermarket and get a boneless, skinless breast. I mean, if you wanted a boneless, skinless breast, you had to go get a whole chicken, take a knife, you know, and a cutting board and cut it out, you know, and then you had the leftover chicken for dumplings and stocks and, and casseroles and things like that. And, and so, so, and so there's a lot of money to be made in, in, in domestic culinary ignorance. So it is absolutely heretical for people like us to suggest to our disconnected culture that home centricity is the foundation of integrity food. And so if we're going to begin to rediscover and become informed and reintegrate integrity food into our lives, it means we've got to rediscover domestic culinary arts. And we've got to, we've got to bring the larder back to the home instead of driving down the road. Where's the food? Oh, the food is in a warehouse, you know, a thousand miles away that's dependent on cheap energy and, and Teamster, you know, happiness and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, merchant-marine uh, trade agreements and, and, and all that to get here. Instead, you know, 100 years ago, the food here was all in the domestic larder in the pantry. And I would suggest that there is a tremendous spiritual benefit to that too because then when you lie down at night with your beloved, you're lying down proximate to a visceral representation of the earth's abundance. And, And in a time, in a time when many of us who are looking at things are quite concerned about running out of things and scarcity, and every environmental sciences class in the country focuses ninety percent of their attention on scarcity and running out. I think it's a I think it's a spiritual bomb and emotional healing to be able to viscerally participate, understand, package, know where your food comes from, and lie down with your beloved with it nearby so that you know you have a hundred days of food in the large ready to eat that you have you have participated in not as a spectator, but you participated in the ultimate game and come alongside this nest that we live in as a participant. Number four, the fourth orthodoxy of our day is that the United States has a divine dispensation that makes it immune from collapse. Along with this is that, uh, you know, unprecedented uh, growth is always a good thing. You know, um, cancer is a growth. Growth is not inherently good. There are some things that shouldn't grow. Uh, but we have a, a gross domestic product uh, economic system that rewards um, uh, gross domestic product. You know, when people are more sick and hospitals are used more, that's more GDP. Um, look at all the disease. Wow, you know, great job opportunity. Everybody gets sick and we can have more people uh, employed. Um how about uh, more prisons you know uh, w- w- if you build a prison that's gross domestic product that 's growth you know um, debt, divorce how about riparian dead zones you know it's amazing it, it, th- there's no expense to dead zones, but boy, to fix them huh that 's GDP you know wow let's have some more dead zones I mean desertification obesity hospitals laws you know there was a there was a Roman axiom that that you could tell the health and 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 um and and strength of any culture by the number of laws that it had and and, and as cultures waned and became um uh, you know anemic and um and impoverished um they just started passing more and more laws and I think that's where we are you know i mean because you know, if you can't fix anything or do anything you can at least pass a law you know you can at least Flex your muscle. We're gonna pass a law about that. We need more than law on that. You know, violence in schools. You know, uh, erosion of money, ignorance. I mean, there's a lot of things that shouldn't grow. And so, heretics are the prophets who warn about going the way we're going. Heretics actually say we're going the wrong way. See, we're a nation now of um, of just uh, uh, you know technicians. And the technicians. Let's say there's, you know, a plane goes down in a Brazilian jungle, right? And eleven survivors. Ten of them have machetes. You know, they're the technicians. And so they're out here, you know, hacking through the hacking through the the, the jungle. You know, uh, uh, let's find civilization. Let's get out here. You know, and there's one prophet in the group. And uh, and the prophet says, well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll jump, I'll climb up a tree here and see if I can find out where the nearest village is. And so the, you know, the the the, the, the hackers, the technicians here, you know, they're down here hacking through the jungle. And the prophet climbs up the tree, he shines up where he looks at it, he says, Hey, everybody, uh, the, there's, there, two miles away, there's a village over here. And they just all yell back at him and say, Hey, don't bother us with trivialities. Look at all the progress we're making. You know. That's what happens when you have a nation of technicians and no prophets. And so it's the prophets that tell us where we're going. And I would suggest that some some heretics that 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 promote you know do it yourself and self reliance and gardenings and clotheslines. Yes, clotheslines. Uh sisters from roof runoffs, <laughs> living roofs. We believe that there's a day of reckoning when nature's balance sheet is going to ask for payment. And what we would like to see is that rectified now. The final orthodoxy and I'm done is ...in our day that rebels are great everywhere except in the U.S. You know, we love the Syrian rebels, we love the Arab Spring, we love the Egyptian rebels, we love the Libyan rebels. But in the U.S., if you're so rebellious that you want to sell raw milk, or you want to make... You want to make compost-grown tomato paste in your kitchen and sell it to your neighbor, or you want to not vaccinate your children or have your animals in a in, in a pasture instead of a confinement facility, or actually let the deer and the rabbits run through your garden and you have manure next to your cabbages that you sell. It no, that is a terrorist and a bioterrorist. And heretics believe, heretics believe that ultimately how a nation treats its innovative lunatic fringe that dares to question the orthodoxy of the day says everything about whether the nation is a tyranny or a liberty society. That is absolutely why. I invite all of you here today. These are just a few. There's a lot more orthodoxies we could play with. But I would invite all of you today to actually enjoy. Don't don't sit here and feel depressed and and frustrated about oh all these, no no. I'm a heretic. Hey, let's, you know, let's be rebels and heretics. Let's unite around Questioning the orthodoxy of the day because it's in the questioning of the orthodoxy of the day that we will ultimately move our culture to a place of truth and honesty.
0: Best of the Left is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investing service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. These are not the shady Wall Street bankers crashing the housing market and getting huge bonuses. Wealthfront is all about using sophisticated software to manage long-term investment accounts that sets your savings for your future on autopilot for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront does all the work of rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and minimizing your tax liability. By investing in boring, but dependable index funds that diversify your money, Wealthfront sets you up for a long-term success and they handle all of the details without ever charging trading fees or commissions. To put it another way, Wealthfront's style of investing is basically the opposite of every risky, complicated, whiz-bang investment strategy that ever made you think someone was trying to scam you. To see for yourself, visit Wealthfront.com left and they'll manage your first $10,000 for absolutely free. That's Wealthfront.com. Slash left. Wealthfront Inc. is an SEC registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA, and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risk, and there is a possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read the full disclosure.
7: There's a New York Times story called the "U.S. Research Lab Lets Livestock Suffer in Quest for Profit." At first, going into the and this was, uh, like I said, brought to our attention by listener Joseph is vegan. And going into this, I, I was expecting a story about factory farming and how horrific it is because it is completely horrific. Yes. Um, just every detail worse than the last,
8: and now it's harder to learn about factory farming after those uh, ag gag laws. Oh
7: yeah, that's right. Um, a book, as much as Jonathan Saffron Foer as a um, novelist, people have mixed feelings on, yeah. and I think as a person, people might have mixed feelings on him. The book Eating Animals is a is a very 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 well written book in my opinion, very thorough and comprehensive. Goes through you know each big aspect of the meat and fish uh, and dairy and animal products industry and shows how horrible it is at every level. So, uh, that is a book that I would recommend, although I'm sure that our vegan listeners have other books that they would recommend too. But this time story is not just about the factory farming industry and how evil it is. Um, it's about the evil, evil machine that fuels the evil machine of factory farming in a way. (laughs) Like Um,
8: one step deeper into the hole.
7: Yeah, Exactly. The article begins by going through some of the horrific things the animals experience um, at this uh, center in Nebraska, a uh, research center. I'm just going to read from the from the Times article a little bit. It describes, you know, the the horrible conditions for all the different animals there. And then the Times writes, These experiments are not the work of a meat processor or a rogue operation. They are conducted by a taxpayer-financed federal institution called the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center, a complex of laboratories and pastures that sprawls over 55 square miles in Clay Center, Nebraska. Little known outside the world of big agriculture, the center has one overarching mission, helping producers of beef, pork, and lamb turn a higher profit as diets shift towards poultry, fish, and produce. So, I mean, this is one of the, this is like, on tomorrow's show, actually, we talk a little bit about being like, about like consumer choices and the effort to be a responsible consumer. And I think one of the the whole idea is behind choosing to eat less meat or choosing to eat no meat uh, or choosing to eat vegan is to make an economic impact on these industries by saying, you know, we are not, you know, there's less of a demand for, for meat, so mm-hmm. produce less meat. And what's horrifying about this story is that because of the financial incentives of producing meat and pork and lamb, rather than saying, oh, well, we'll produce less beef, pork, and lamb, now it's just, well, we'll do these these absolutely horrific experiments so that we can maximize the profit on beef, pork, and lamb as the economy changes.
8: And these are, if I remember right, these are things like animals are giving birth to like deformed twins yeah and right? they're making
7: they're they're, they're uh right they're, they're making pigs give birth to more almost twice as many piglets as they're supposed to uh-huh. there's obviously there's no room for anybody there's yeah there's birth deformities so many animals being being born that tons are dying and that's just part of the calculated cost of making it worth it to make more and they do these experiments to make lamb chops bigger make pork loins less fatty uh make steaks easier to chew so ta- changing the texture of meat, changing the makeup, the, the, the composition of meat by changing the diet, by doing these experiments on on animals, how can you change the meat? So the New York Times actually did th- this, this article, it's, it's quite long, um... Uh, but again, r- highly recommended. Uh, and it actually did its own investigation to, to read again a little bit from the article. An investigation by the New York Times shows that these endeavors to make the, the meat, um, like what I just said before, uh, changing the meat, these endeavors have come at a steep cost to the, to the center's animals, which has been suggested, which have been subjected to illness, pain, and premature death over many years. The research to increase pig litters began in 1986. Twin calves have been dying at high rates since 1984. So this we're talking decades of these experiments, decades of of conditions leading these animals to to be sick and and dying, um, and there's like the little regulation there is when it comes to um, animal welfare in this country. Uh, there's a there's the Animal Welfare Act which was passed in 1966, and the Animal Welfare Act set, basically maintains a kind of you know minimum amount of like humane treatment for animals to say, you know, that you're not supposed to to torture animals, basically. But the loophole there is that it doesn't apply to farm animals used in research to benefit agriculture.
8: That's a, again, that is a huge loophole. It's a big
7: loophole in a country where everybody eats meat every day, two or three times a day. Yeah. Uh, And you're
8: considered weird if you don't.
7: Yes. I was watching Chop yesterday, and the theme of Chopped, that Chopped, was budget ingredients. And so they only had, like, one meat item, and it was, like, a low-budget meat item, like a ham steak or something. And uh some of the judges, somebody made, like, a vegetable-based meal, and the judges were like, there needs to be some kind of meat in here. Like, I feel <laughs> like I'm eating a low-budget meal. Like, I'm not, you know. And it was wow. so funny to me because I'm so used to not eating meat at the center of the meal that I was like, I understand that people get used to that and you have to kind of retrain the way that you think about a meal. But I was like, that even like people who eat food professionally are like, if there's not a big piece of protein at the center of this meal, I don't feel like I'm actually getting a meal. Yeah. It's very interesting to me. So there's this, this giant loophole about there's not really a, a requirement, as I understand for humane treatment for farm animals being used in research to benefit agriculture. And so there's been an effort to try to get like independent oversight over these places doing this research. The Agriculture Department polices the treatment of animals at slaughterhouses and private laboratories, but it doesn't monitor this particular center's use of animals or enforce rules about the experiments they conduct. So basically...
8: So it's just the Wild West.
7: Yeah, it seems like, long story short, this is a completely lawless facility where they are torturing and killing animals in the name of maximizing profits for beef, pork, and lamb industries.
8: And it's been happening for decades. It's
7: been happening for decades. It seems like they're not, like, legally doing anything wrong. There's not... Uh The problem is that there's not regulations or oversight to make it so that what they're doing is not only morally wrong, but also wrong in the eyes of the law.
8: It's one of these things where, right, exactly, where you may have to make what is moral and what is legal dovetail, because right now, if this is legal, right. that is a criticism of the legal apparatus, not, shouldn't be seen as a de facto okay on the morality of the practices. right.
7: Right. And the kind of, like, I don't know if whistleblower is too strong a term, but the guy who brought this to the attention of the Times is this veterinarian and scientist named Dr. Keene who, uh, who came to the Times and said the animals are being mistreated here. And so then the Times interviewed, um, employees and looked through the records under a FOIA request. Just to read one more paragraph here before we move forward. Yeah,
8: no, keep going. This is fascinating. Uh,
7: the reporting, the Times reporting through the FOIA request and interviewing the employees, uh, shows that the center's drive to make livestock bigger, leaner, and more prolific and more profitable can, uh, be punishing, creating harmful complications that require more intensive experiments to solve. The leaner pigs, uh, for example, that, so, yeah, I don't even want to go into the specifics of this because it's so upsetting. But basically, they're doing these experiments to maximize the profit, right? To make leaner pigs so that the more appealing pork chops, right? But in doing so, you're creating all these additional health problems, obviously, for the pigs. You're doing these, these science experiments on them. And so then they have all these health problems that then require more. Okay, so then how do we address this health problem? So you're, you're, it's like, You're so many degrees removed from how you're actually supposed to be caring for these animals, you know. And there's a sentence I wish I – oh, yeah. So this sentence is really really powerful and and brutal and devastating, and I'm really glad that the Times – two sentences that the Times included it. Times writes, Certainly the production of meat is a rough enterprise. Yet even against that reality, raising animals to be killed for profit, this center stands out. Which I feel like is like, for the Times to be like, listen, what is the meat industry? The meat industry is raising animals to be killed for profit.
8: And it's gruesome.
7: And it's gruesome. And even taking that, this center looks horrifying, even standing out from the the basic premise of, of the meat industry, which is raising animals to be killed. So, yeah, it is a powerful read and um long long and 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 looks like really great investigative work by the times and highly recommended um to vegans and animal rights people and also non-vegans and non-animal rights people alike because animal rights are one of those things that many people just kind of look away from kind of or requires s- looking away and not thinking closely about it
8: yeah or see it as a, a sort of niche right. issue right. as opposed to something that we all think about at least three times a day. Right.
7: And people will say this. People who eat meat will say, like, not my job to think about where it came from or whatever. Mm. It's not an animal anymore. It's my steak. You know, that's what people, people do. <laughs> and then when you actually make somebody think about it, I think people often, not everybody, uh, get pretty uncomfortable. Meet the product.
9: laboratory tests stuffed in cages a maze of metal nests drunk on hormones they grow to their grotesque it barely passes for a life and at the end of butcher's night they're just animals what's
3: the harm another day of dirty work down on the farm
2: meet
9: the workers their master flecks in blood see the feathers and the shit ground into mud, snap their necks. Watch them come forward with a thud. You turn off your humanity, to you try to be your family. They're just animals, Watch the
2: harm? Another day of dirty work, down on.
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, helping curb factory farming. Because no matter your dietary needs or preferences, one thing we should all be able to agree on is that factory farms are a nightmare of cruelty and planetary destruction. If you believe in science and evidence and facts, the United Nations has pretty much ended the debate on whether a human-friendly climate can handle the rate of factory-farming animal agriculture we're attempting to impose on it. Senior UN Food and Agriculture Organization official Henning Steinfeld delivered this unequivocal assessment. Quote, Livestock are one of the most significant contributors to today's most serious environmental problems. Urgent action is required to remedy this situation. Unquote. The UN report continues by calling out cattle rearing specifically as a quote major source of land and water degradation. unquote. Not only do humans need to slow down the rate of growth around the world of factory farming, but the UN warns that quote the environmental cost per unit of livestock production must be cut by one half just to avoid the level of damage worsening beyond its present level. unquote. If we as progressives are going to yell at hardline conservatives for not listening to us on the need to build transit, cap carbon, and stop drilling for oil and natural gas, perhaps we should pause to hear what international scientists have been screaming about in unison for almost a decade. According to the UN report, quote, When emissions from land use and land use change are included, the livestock sector accounts for 9% of CO2 deriving from human-related activities, but produces a much larger share of even more harmful greenhouse gases. It generates 65% of human-related nitrous oxide, which has 296 times the global warming potential of CO2. Most of this comes from manure, unquote. The good news is that there are organizations fighting factory farming in virtually every country. If you don't live in the U.S., or you do, and you're looking for a local group in your city and state, you can search at worldanimal.net slash directory. And if you are in the States, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, better known as the ASPCA, has 10 ways to fight factory farming under their Fight Cruelty tab at ASPCA.org. Among their suggestions are Let Money Talk by using Using their guide to find animal welfare certification labels. If the products are raised ethically, they likely don't come from a factory farm. Ask local grocers and restaurants to offer foods that are more humanely raised. This one shouldn't be such a tough ask anymore, as awareness of the local food movement has made it to most areas. Take action in your community by starting petitions and letter writing campaigns or organizing a local group and educating kids on food and farming ethics and the increasingly popular If You See Something, Say Something. Factory farm conditions aren't just unsafe for the climate and the animals, they are often unsafe for workers. You can join up with labor organizers, immigration activists, and others whose constituencies overlap with your concerns about farming practices. You can also check out the Humane Society's factory farming campaign at humanesociety.org and sign their Protect Farm Animals petition. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every action Activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If preserving a livable climate matters to you and you don't mind also reducing cruelty to animals, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about ending factory farming via social media so that others in your network can join in too.
9: They're called ag-gag laws, agricultural gag rules, and they're working their way across the United States like an evil ice bucket challenge. The massive agricultural corporations have realized that if Americans knew how they treated animals, we would be f- Horrified. We would find it grosser than Papa John's Ultra Goon CEO John Schnatter wet humping the droopy neck fat of Rupert Murdoch in a porta potty just used by the entire front line of the Chicago Bears. I know, I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I had to do that. Because I needed to explain how gross factory farms are, alright? The only other option was to show you Donald Trump's hair. So, you got off easy. You should thank me. Tell your friends of the kindness of St. Lee Camp. Over 99% of farm animals in the U.S. come from factory farms. If every American knew that the chickens never get to spread their wings or that the pigs are kept practically on top of each other their entire lives pumped full of antibiotics so they can survive the poop fest in which they exist, then we would not accept this or feed it to our families. I mean, it's more natural to feed your kids ho-hos dipped in Count Chocula. And, uh, And I'm not saying don't eat meat because we can have have that that debate in a future time, but no one should be okay with meat that comes from these horror shows, where animals are stored in the same way they stored Neo and his friends in The Matrix. Little pods where they sucked out Keanu Reeves' juices and his acting ability, leaving, leaving him emaciated and emotionless. But those pigs and chickens and cows, they get no Jada Pinkett Smith. They get paid in piles of it's it's animal cruel and unusual punishment to be raised like that and then put inside a Happy Meal. It's not a Happy Meal. Do you have no shame? At least at least call it a painful box of sadness with with a Lego toy inside. According to the ASPCA, Idaho, Kansas, Montana, Iowa, Utah, and North Dakota all make it illegal to film or take photos inside a factory farm or have other ag-gag laws. Think about it. It's legal to film some of the most heinous stuff in our culture. Terrible forms of porn are legal to film. Backyard brawls, amateur surgery. In some states, in some states, they've even found it legal to take upskirt photos of unsuspecting women. But yet... Yet it's not legal to film a cow being tortured, you can snatch photos of a snatch without consent, but 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 can't grab shots of pigs pumped full of hormones and antibiotics. And anytime something is forbidden to film, you can assume there's some villainous stuff going down. I mean, look at the list of things they've made it illegal to film: child porn, the creation of fracking chemicals. Those are kept secret. The Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations. Even Congress is barely allowed to get a glimpse to them, anything at the NSA, police brutality in some states is illegal to record, and finally, factory farming. Luckily, some brave activists, patriots, who want to create a better world, have risked their freedom to film some of this anti-animal savagery, such as filmmaker Mark DeVries, who sent a drone over the rivers of cow and pig feces that are collected into giant lakes. Environmentally disastrous, viscerally repugnant rivers of like the ideas and actions of the Republican Party. Rivers of shit. Like the actions, but not always the ideas, of the Democrat Party. Rivers of shit. Like the souls of the heads of corporate record labels. Rivers of shit. Do we get to do whatever we want with animals? Is that how our existence on this planet works? I mean, obviously not. Sarah McLaughlin's singing her lungs out to maim retrievers and pit bulls every day. Even though I'm sure the POW pitbull community is probably like, can we get another Entertainer in this joint is Jay Z so busy he can't get his out here. Hell, send in Macklemore for all I care, just not McLaughlin. So if we're not okay with harming dogs and cats, why other animals to such an extent? The greater point is, if these industries think the way they treat animals is acceptable, then they should have no problem showing it to us. And the activists revealing what goes on there should be hailed as heroes for pulling back the curtain on the dark secrets that fuel our fat-bloated culture. Ignorance of this farming is the only thing that keeps it going. America runs on Duncan... No, in this case, America runs on ignorance.
3: My name is Ash. I'm from Washington, D.C., just giving a shout out to everyone who's out there. Um, as a trans person, I want to add two things to last week's piece on trans individuals. One is this concept which she keeps has she's been brought up in this episode of how, you know, gender essentialism, which is I was born into a woman's body, any of these things. like The born-this-way argument is really just a soundbite that makes things more palatable for cis people to understand the plight of trans people, right? Like, especially when we talk about trans people been creating a binary between, you know, are you woman? Are you man? Where are you on a spectrum? But, I mean, it's a much broader system than that. You don't have to fit within man and women. You can have agenders. There's literally uh, innumerable amounts of genders that people can be in. For me personally, I don't need to fit within that spectrum. I can operate outside of the spectrum. In fact, that's what a lot of transgender people would advocate for is that, believing that there is a binary and that we fit on that spectrum is precisely what I will holds the patriarchy that was talked about earlier by Janet Mock in that piece. Uh, the second thing I want to bring up, and I think this is super duper important, and all of the, the readers and listeners should know about this, is how intersectional violence is with trans women of color specifically, because we talk a lot about trans rights and a lot of violence that is committed against trans people but one of the things people don't know is how many trans women of color have been murdered over just since 2015 started Uh, there's at least 11 to my understanding but if you saw 11 cis gay men get murdered since 2015 you'd say people would freak out about you know lgbt murders but these people trans women of color are being ignored and that needs to be exposed there's lots of resources out there i highly recommend that people look into it it's super important thank you so much
10: Hi, Jay. This is Dee Dee from Philly. I am a long-time listener and a one-time voicemail contributor about the uh, feminism episode. I'm actually calling now about an issue that's very personal. Yesterday, my uncle was shot and killed by police officers. I'm hoping that many of you have probably seen or read about the event. If not, this happened in Maryland, and it's something that affects both sides of my family, both my mother's side and my father's side. I'm hoping to start a campaign to bring more attention to the fact that police officers can be allies to stop this from happening in the future. Every police officer is responsible for the culture of the police department that they are a part of. My voice doesn't matter, but one police officer will listen to the voice of another. So I'm starting the hashtag, Yes, All Police. All police have a responsibility to speak up, to speak out, to do whatever they can to let everyone know but there are good guys and there are bad guys. And both of them work for the police. Please feel free to share the hashtag, yes, all police. And if there's anything else I can do, let me know. Thanks.
5: Hey, Jay, Mick from Australia. I was going to ring call up after your libertarian episode, being libertarian myself, but uh, I thought better of it. But then I heard they bit on blubbing and I thought I might weigh you I'm not going to comment on the misrepresentation of my version of libertarianism there's a lot of different versions of it anyway but i did think that young turk's derision of the libertarian utopia is about as specious as meter writing socialism by pointing to Jonestown. Now no maybe my, my example's a little bit worse but you get the idea i wanted to talk about tom hartman and and, and the, the tragic stories he told and, and i think he was gloving you know i think that's the old or whatever it was linking back to the programming language analogy when i heard him tell those stories i really thought he was talking about a failure of government and the failure of unions and the failure of you know they had they had good information but they they failed to act and so i think what i took away from that is that my prison tends to see things libertarian and point to that as a failure of government you're talking about a time when the workplace was heavily regulated heavily unionized and it didn't work and and that points me to one of the Biggest criticism to the left I have is that you, you're never going to be able to regulate enough for people of the left. You're never going to be able to put these issues to bed because government is incompetent. <laughs> it, I suppose is the core of the libertarian belief, and and that's a good, really good example of, of that incompetence in action. That's that's my take. Isn't it? Uh, a little bit on libertarianism. I, mean, I actually believe in single payer healthcare. Being an Australian, um, that's probably an unusual libertarian view, but I believe it's it's quite a, it's an efficient way. Um, and it can be justified in terms of the social contract. So I don't believe taxation is theft. Uh, taxation is part of what we have to pay to live in society and be part of society. I think there's some moral, there's moral justification if you take if you tax someone and provide a, a service that they can use, like a road. Morally, if you tax someone and just give that money to someone else, yeah, that we're moving into question a more questionable country. But if you couch that in terms of the social contract I can I can accept it. What I look into to is universal healthcare, I like it because it's also a flat tax. Everyone pays the same amount, everyone gets access to the same service. And so everyone say when I say everyone pays the same amount, they say they pay the same percentage. So it's a it's a flat tax. But the the objection or if the US was to implement it, I'd counsel them to to consider making sure that it's linked to the actual expenditure. So you look in Australia we pay one and a half percent of all of our salaries into medicare and um that raises nine billion dollars and the hospital system costs about 35 so we really should be paying around four or five percent of everyone's income into that system for it to be sustainable but the politics of that don't seem to work so and i'm not sure why we get we get a great hospital service if we have to pay five percent of our salary If we have to pay what it really costs we should pay what it really costs, and I think that's probably part of the right. And, and the libertarians' objection to it is, it becomes an exercise in wealth distribution instead of part of the social contract. You pay what it costs, you get access to the service that you want. That's my thoughts. Um, love the show. Been listening for years and years, even though I don't agree with probably 40% of it. It's it's uh, still very well made. Thank you. See you.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klabusek for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Quick reminder, of course, that the voting for the podcast awards is going on. Go to podcastawards.com, set your calendar, set an alarm, do what you need to do, and vote every day between now and the end of March twenty fourth. Fourth. Best of the Left is up for a People's Choice Award. Our friends at the Majority Report are up for a News and Politics Award, and it's all about listener engagement. So, vote every day, and that's how we're going to win. Thank you very much. Uh, secondly, I want to respond to Mick from Australia, the Libertarian who called in. Now, as far as Libertarians go, he didn't sound nearly as crazy as he could have, and you know, and he said things that I would agree with, which is usually the case with Libertarians. But I am going to pick on him for the things that. He said that didn't make any sense. You know, he, he pointed out specifically uh, Tom Hartman's stories on that episode where he, he talked about uh, members of his friends and family who were uh, victims of asbestos poisoning. And Mick's response, because of his worldview, was that that must have been a, a criticism of government, a failure of government to properly regulate and was you know it sounded like he was sort of surprised then to hear oh well he no he's not criticizing government he's criticizing libertarianism how strange, and what I never understand about libertarians and, and Mick is a perfect example of this is that they seem to speak as though uh, criticizing government and, and pointing out governmental failures and supporting governmental reforms and trying to improve government are somehow mutually exclusive. You know, that they, they speak as as if progressives are always fawning over government and always saying how wonderful government is. Whereas from my perspective, as a progressive, I feel like all I ever do is criticize the government. I criticize the government. I criticize uh, organizations. I criticize individuals. Like, it, it, it's harder for me to remember a time when I praised anyone than, than to think back to almost anything I've ever said or any clip I've ever posted on this show that is critical of someone, very often the government. So, you know, Mick's perspective is that asbestos poisoning was a failure of government. I don't even have to disagree with that premise to come to a wildly different conclusion. Well, what I never hear from libertarians is uh, the government. Is doing a really bad job at this because they're, you know, they're a failure and they're incompetent and they can't do anything right. Therefore, I have this really great idea for how we can all work together to protect ourselves better than the government does. Criticizing the government and pointing out failures of government to me sound like opportunities for improvement. Whereas a libertarian points out failures in government and says, well, so fuck it. I, I I don't know how that makes sense to anyone. It, it's like a it's like a sports team they you know they practice really hard they they go they play a big game and they lose. and then the coach says, all right, so you know, we practiced really hard, but we lost. So next time we're gonna not practice at all and then see if we do better that way when a libertarian wants to criticize the government for its failures. I can get on board with that it's It's the conclusion that they come to that. Therefore, we should stop trying to make improvements is where they completely lose me, and I can't even fathom what it would be like to have a mentality like that, to, to believe somehow that if we, as as a collective group of people, stop trying to work together in order to offset the, the power structures of, you know, either individual billionaires or big corporations that seek profit over, you know, human needs and all those sorts of things. If, if we stop trying to work collectively together, the belief that we would end up with a better outcome for average people and society in general is something I don't think I'll ever be able to wrap my mind around because I've never seen an example that comes anywhere close to making sense where that's the case. I'm not particularly interested in having a debate over libertarianism, but if you have comments on this or anything else, preferably, uh, the number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today, but I want to quickly thank one more time Wealthfront for supporting the show. They're an automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. They automatically rebalance your portfolio and reinvest your dividends, all commission free. Wealthfront manages over $2 billion and has saved millions on taxes for its clients Visit wealthfront.com slash left to get your first $10,000 managed for free. Now, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That's absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left Podcast, coming to you every Tuesday. Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Bestofleft.com
2: and it's a cry and shame. How we get so trained, we can't see past our own sad stories, and wonder what
10: we're missing. We Can see past our own sad stories and forget. stories and